Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. I'm doing great. Glad to be here. And next week, Zeb will be back with us. Yes, he will. He'll be back with us. He'll be back. He's all going to be sunburned. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So I think we need to have you move in just a smidge closer. How's that? Is oh, that better? better. Okay. Go. Yeah, we got the thumbs up from the uh, <laughs> okay, we're good to go. All right, so what so today? I want to say hi to a couple of people. Okay. One is Emerson, who actually told me a story um, about, and I'm going to be talking about buffalo hunters today. Okay. So he told me a story about a guy named Porter Rockwell, who had heard you could not kill a buffalo by shooting it in the head. And so he actually, and so he <clears throat> he actually got a uh, ran ahead of a buffalo herd and got in front of a buffalo, shot it right between the eyes, and all there was was a puff of dust, and that old buffalo just kept on a running, right. and Porter had to get out of the way. <laughs> so, then I want to say thanks to Austin who uh, gave me a suggestion for a show, and also Alan who gave me a suggestion for a show. But today we're going to talk about this is be my last session on buffalo, I promise, <laughs> and uh, so it's going to I'm going to talk about. It is. So I'm going to talk about the shooters, the hide hunters. Okay. So by the summer of 1872, literally thousands of buffalo hunters had converged on the Great Plains, and they had or would soon earn names like Buffalo Bill Comstock, Buffalo Bill Cody, Cross-Eyed Joe, Apache Bill, Buffalo Char- uh, Curly, Wyatt Pat Garrett, uh, Crooked Nose, Jack McCall, just uh, kind of an interesting bunch of guys. Now, different hide hunters worked in different ways, but the ones with a head for business started their own outfits. An outfit was usually managed by the shooter. He'd hire a couple of skinners and a camp tender. A six-man outfit uh, would depart civilization with, they'd usually have two or three uh, ox-drawn carts loaded with barrels of coffee, salt, sugar, flour, camp equipment, and skinning equipment. And they made, uh, they had bullet-making materials. They would have five 25-pound kegs of DuPont gunpowder, 800 pounds of lead, hundreds of brass casings, and thousands of cartridge primers. So they were ready to go. So heading into dangerous country, a hide-hunting outfit might travel with another outfit or two just for safety's sake, but uh, while the wagons headed toward a general area where buffalo herds were expected to be hanging around, the shooters would cut broad circles on horseback, scouting for signs of buffalo. Now, the scouts might be gone from the wagons for several days at a time, and they would return to their rendezvous point only when they found a herd or they found a good trail. Now, when they did find buffalo, they didn't just storm into the herd with their guns ablaze. They were more calculated than that. First, they'd check out the lay of the land and find a good campsite, preferably in a deep gully or a canyon where they'd be hidden from the Indians and the buffalo. They also needed a water source and plenty of buffalo chips or wood for a cooking fire. When the camp set up and everything was ready, the shooter would get some sleep and then ride out early in the morning. Now, they liked the 44, 45, and 50 caliber rifles that were made by Sharps and Springfield. And they carried hundreds of cartridges. A lot of the shooters actually liked cartridge belts that they would wear around their waist. And a belt would hold, oh, about 42 rounds. And a shooter might wear two or else put his ammo into a bandolier worn across his chest. 
Now, a shooter would tether his horse uh, somewhere close to the herd, but out of sight and, more important, downwind. Then he'd study the herd, which way was the wind blowing, were they feeding or sleeping, were they holding still, were they walking, preferably the buffalo would be still. That was the best situation. If there were thousands of animals, the shooter would select a particular band off to the side of the main bunch. Uh, A group of about 50 was a good number. They liked that size. Then he'd check, uh, he'd use creek beds or sagebrush clumps or stands of cottonwoods to stock within a couple of hundred yards. If he got too close, he'd risk spooking the herd. If it was too far off, he'd risk making bad hits and just wounding a buffalo. So it was a uh, kind of an art to be able to get in close enough, but not too close. Well, he'd get his gear all set and ready before he started shooting. He needed a solid rest, some place to steady the barrel of his gun. He might use a wadded-up jacket, or sometimes I've seen pictures where they take a couple of sticks and cross them and rest their gun in the crook of those two cross sticks. Uh, sometimes they'd get a mound of packed snow or even mounds of buffalo chips, anything to rest their gun so they'd have a, a steady way to shoot. Well, he'd take off his ammo belt and lay it next to him. Then he would try to determine the herd's leader. Now, usually, and this kind of surprised me, usually it was an older cow. I figured it'd be a bull, but it was usually an older cow. And the leader might be out in front of the herd and setting the pace of movement. And that's the one he wanted to hit first. Now, if the buffalo were bedded down, the shooter might not know who the leader was. And if that was the case, he'd pick a buffalo on the outer distant edge of the herd, probably the farthest away that he would shoot. Now, the shooter would send his bullets through the target, through the uh, the buffalo's lungs, and these were called, quote, lights. And I'm not sure why they called it that, but that's what they did. Now, a lung-hit buffalo usually wouldn't run, but would just take a few steps before sinking down and tipping over. Now, it would kick for a second, and then it would be still. Now, the fallen buffalo's herdmates would respond in a number of ways. The buffalo might walk up and smell the blood. They might act very aggressively toward the downed animal and actually gore it. I mean, you know, and that uh, that surprised me too. Um, or they might take off in a wild stampede, stampede. And, of course, that was the last thing the hunter wanted was to have one down and the rest gone. Well, the goal was to have the herd milling about in confusion, no idea where to go, no idea where the danger was coming from, and as soon as one of the buffalo showed an initiative toward leaving, the shooter would pull a bullet in its lungs. Now, if the buffalo uh, wanted to, uh, to travel in a particular direction, the shooter would drop an animal or two in the path and and try to change his mind. And if a buffalo ran, the shooter would try to knock it down in a hurry. If he fired more than a round or two a minute, the rifle barrel would get too hot. And that's when they would actually get snow if it was handy and uh, put it uh, into the barrel of the gun. Or if they had a canteen, sometimes they'd pour water down the barrel to because they're going, you know, two, maybe three a minute, usually two a minute. And so that barrel would get pretty hot. Yeah, but wouldn't that warp the metal? Uh, not evidently, because they, that's what they did to cool the barrel. Yeah. Wow. But when a herd started moving away from a shooter, it was said to be, quote, adrift. 
Now, the shooter would follow along, and he would actually go from downed buffalo to downed buffalo so he could use the carcass as a place to rest his rifle, and it also hid him. So he would just kind of follow, and he had to be careful because a half-dead or stunned buffalo might get up and charge him. And I'm going to tell you more about that in a minute. Uh, there are documented reports of shooters killing 100 or 200 buffalo within an hour or two, but 30 or 40 was usually considered a good day's shooting. A uh, shooter didn't want to go too far over that number because he was limited by how many hides his skinners could remove. And you didn't want to leave them overnight because the buffalo, they would bloat. Uh, the hides would get tight. They'd be hard to pull off. And if you left them overnight, sometimes wolves would come in and tear them apart. Or if it was cold, they, they might freeze. And then, again, hard to get, get them off. <clears throat> now, in really good hunting, skinners might make upwards of $20 a day. They usually got 25 or 30 cents or, uh, per hide. Uh, those skinners from Mexico would do it for 20 cents a hide. And the skinners followed along uh, the shooter's path with a wagon. Now, some skinners drove a big steel rod through the buffalo's head. Now, picture this. They would anchor it to the ground. Then they'd make some skinning cuts on the hide and actually pull the hide off with the draft team, with the horses. They'd actually just kind of rip it off. Now, a lot of the skinners didn't like this method. Method They just skin the animal uh, slice by slice with a knife, and that seemed to be really the most effective. So the hides had to be pegged out to dry, meat side up and fur side down. In wet weather, the skinner flip-flopped the hides back and forth until it was dry. The skinners would either do the hide staking right where the buffalo fell, or they'd haul the hides back to camp, and they'd do it there. Now, if the ground was frozen, they might actually use rocks to stretch out the hide. Now, a skinner might carve his initials in the uh, tissue so they'd know which skinner had done which, so they'd get credit. When the hides were dried out, usually after a week or so, they'd stack them into piles that were eight feet high. They'd cut leather cords from fresh hides and then run the cords through the holes cut in the bottom and top hides so they could cinch the stack down tight. And that's how they hauled them uh, to market. Now, the hides were ready to be hauled uh, to the railroad depot. After a few months out or a season, a a hunting outfit could have upwards of 4,000 or 5,000 hides. Now, the prices varied. When the hides were really flooding in, they were sometimes dropped to a, a dollar a hide or less. Now, that wasn't much money. And, uh, you know, toward the end of uh, the hide hunting era, when the buffalo left were in Montana, the only ones, uh, the hunters were getting as much as $3.50 for a cow, uh, $2.50 for a bull, $1.50 for a yearling, and $0.75 cents for calves. And for some reason, they liked the, the, the cow hides better than any of the others. So maybe a thousandth of that went, uh, that meat actually went to market. So <laughs> tons and tons of meat just went to waste, you know, just rotted. Uh, it really is. Now, occasionally they would have a load of brined buffalo tongues. Okay, uh, 25 cents a piece or smoked hams, three cents a pound, but it just wasn't profitable to handle the actual meat of the buffalo. Now, the hide hunters were some of the, uh, what you'd call the, uh, uh, grubbiest people on the face of the earth, okay? A little rough. Yeah, how did they go? Uh, well, I'm going to tell you how they did that. 
Long hair was a fad among them. They all had long hair. Their blankets would get so full of lice and bed bugs that they would lay them on ant hills so that ants could carry away the larvae. And that actually worked. I've heard of that uh, oh happening with uh, even with cattle drives. If you got lice, you could put your clothes over an anthill. But the hunters would often eat little else besides buffalo. Now, the beginners, or what we'd call tenderfeet, would start out eating the prime cuts. But within months, they suffered nutritional deficiencies that caused their tongues to break out in lesions. And after a while, they learned to be more like the Indians. They'd eat the liver, the kidney, and the glands uh, because of the vitamins that were in that. And some hunters seasoned the meat with gunpowder for kind of a peppery effect. Okay. Now... Got the term, I'm going to pepper you. Yeah, I, I, yeah. So, now picture this. Often the stench of rotting carcasses around their camps would prevent them from eating. And again, flies would get bad enough to just run off their horses. In wet weather, the hides would rot. In hot weather, the hides would rot. Mm-hmm. And when there was snow on the ground, the hunters would smear mixtures of gunpowder and buffalo grease under their eyes to cut the glare, just like you see with a football player now. Uh, in blizzards, they would gut out freshly killed buffalo carcasses and spend the night inside the carcass to keep from freezing to death. To <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they waterproofed their boots and clothes with raw buffalo fat. And they greased their lips uh, with that as well. That would keep you from licking. <laughs> you wouldn't lick your lips, no. Yeah. Now, the job had its dangers. Hide hunters sometimes died from rabies after bitten by skunks who came into the camp by the, the smell of the, bee, of the meat. And along the Yellowstone River near Glendive, Montana, a buffalo hunter was killed by a buffalo that woke up after the hunter had already cut out his tongue for dinner. The buffalo wasn't dead. Oh <laughs> Got up and gored the, the hunter. I'll show you. Yeah. Uh, three, three hide hunters were killed in a prairie fire. I mean, those, uh, I used to work for the BLM on fire crew and, uh, a fire can move across prairie. You can't outrun it. Yeah. So two hide hunters from Wisconsin froze to death in Nebraska. Their companion lost both feet. In the Easter blizzard of 1873, upward of a hundred hide hunters froze to death on the southern Great Plains. I mean, that's a a lot of men. Now, the hide boom only lasted a dozen years before the buffalo ran out. The first big hunting push was in the vicinity of Dodge City in 1871. That was the first big year. The hide hunters killed so many animals so close to town that the residents complained about the stench of rotting carcasses it would have had to drift into town you know that that couldn't have been good but that winter a half a million buffalo hides were shipped out of dodge the hunters spread out from there uh, along the south fork of the platte river hundreds of buffalo hunters actually lined 50 miles of river riverbank and they used fires to keep the buffalo from getting to the water at night in four daytime periods, they gunned down 50,000 of these buffalo that were trying to get to the river to drink. Well, once the railroad made it to Mile City, Montana in 1881, 
Word spread that the core of the last great herd had been tapped. High dealers calculated that 500,000 buffalo ranged within 150 miles of town, up by Mile City. Soon there were 5,000 hide hunters killing the animals. A herd that was estimated at 75,000 head crossed the Yellowstone River three miles outside of Mile City, and they were moving north in a big herd. The hunters stayed with the buffalo, and they pushed them along. Now, here's where accounts vary. Uh, been anywhere from zero to 5,000 buffalo were all that were left by the time the herd reached Canada. And by 1883, one remaining large herd had moved into the Black Hills. It started out as 10,000 buffalo and was quick, quickly reduced to 1,000 by the white hide hunters. And then the Sioux warrior Sitting Bull and a 1,000 of his men on the herd killed the rest. So... Uh, you know, that's kind of the end of the uh, the hide hunting. And as I mentioned last week, you know, these hides were being used by tanneries uh, uh, and ordered by uh, tanneries even as far away as England to be used for whatever. And, you know, I also mentioned how the, the Indians, they used every part of the, of the buffalo. They did not waste anything. And that's what makes it so sad is that these hide hunters wasted so much of it right exactly and the the indians it was a it was a uh sacred thing to kill an animal and they praised the great spirit uh for uh, providing this animal uh i got a little bit more about the buffalo tongue i thought you might like that so the buffalo tongue were prepared for shipment in different ways they were packed uh packed fresh into wooden barrels between layers of salt <clears throat> they were brined in a mixture of water, sugar, and salt. Then they were smoked like bacon and packed into barrels. And they were air-dried with salt and then submerged in barrels full of the brine. And uh, so that's how they uh, were able to uh, take care of them. Now, a popular brine recipe for a 19-gallon barrel was water two pounds of sugar, and a tablespoon of saltpeter or potassium nitrate. As a food additive, uh, this saltpeter inhibits, <clears throat> excuse me, inhibits the bacterial growth and gives meat kind of a reddish color. And, of course, it's also a principal component of gunpowder. And in the days of eating buffalo tongue, saltpeter was produced from various forms of decomposing organic matter like, <clears throat> well, <laughs> stale urine, pigeon, and bat guano. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, now it's produced through what they call the Haber process, which uses uh, atmospheric nitri nitrogen to produce ammonia and, in turn, saltpeter. But uh, despite its more appetizing modern production method, the use of saltpeter in food has kind of waned in recent decades thanks to uh, concerns over health. Uh, uh, it's been actually linked to kidney, kidney disease, anemia, heart problems. Uh, anyway, so, uh, they, they, so things have changed a lot from the days of preparing uh, tongue for, uh, for sale in the, in the East or wherever. They, I, I've never eaten it myself. No, uh, I, I, well, very much. I wouldn't mind trying to bite. But I'm not going to order it in a restaurant, I no. can tell you that. <laughs> not. <laughs> so that's kind of the the story about the buffalo from beginning to kind of to the end. 
you know, people blasted the Indians and saying how savage they were and and uncaring and mean to their uh, opposing tribes and stuff like that. But if you really think about it, though, you know, in this instance here where the buffalo were left and not used, the Indians really did appreciate what they had, what was given. And if they took a life, whether it be a deer, a buffalo, an elk, whatever, they gave thanks for that. They appreciated that life that was given for their sustenance. And they did use every part of it that could possibly be used uh, in in their sustaining of their lives. Exactly. You know, uh, if you think about all the buffalo, there's something that uh, goes on a little beyond the buffalo, and that's their bones. Yeah. And uh, when the hide hunters were done, of course, they left these great big piles of bones, huge piles. And uh, what happened was uh, they would uh, actually uh, take some of this, uh, make bone china out of the, the powdered bone. Um, they would uh, purchase the bones uh, from the, the pioneers out there that would gather it up and sell it. Wow. Um, but the bones gave American and English produced porcelain a kind of a translucency and a whiteness uh, that could actually compete with Oriental China that had been imported. So and they figured out how to do that too. Yeah. And other big consumer, consumers of the buffalo bones were the sugar, wine, and vinegar industries. They'd been using wood ash to neutralize acids. But uh, in the early 19th century, they actually found that bone ash did a better job of making sugar more shiny and wine less cloudy. Uh, They also used buffalo bone in ash uh, in fine graining uh, polishing agents and baking powders. So there was a whole new thing that developed uh, from the uh, wake of the dead buffalo. Wow. That's amazing. 